1: to another episode of Nature Reliance Podcast. I'm Tracy, and I'll be your primary host for today. I am joined by John May, Jim Cuppy, and Craig Cottle. During the 1,000-year flood that hit eastern Kentucky, the Wolf County Search and Rescue Swift Water Boat Team was one of the first teams to respond to the area. This podcast recaps the events of the early morning and the days after the flooding had receded. I hope you enjoy. Let's get started. Welcome in to our listeners. We appreciate you joining us. I tell you, if we had a um, we had an old-time roundtable, it would be full. We got three guests and four, including myself. So with the way technology is, I guess, instead of a full roundtable, we got a full computer screen. So we'll go around and introduce everyone. The first one to the top left here is John May. John is their uh, Wolf County Search and Rescue SAR chief. John, welcome in.
2: Thanks, Tracy. Glad to be here this evening.
1: Uh, real quick, how long have you been doing search and rescue?
2: Yeah, I've been on the uh, Wolf County Search and Rescue team uh, right at 20 years. So kind of getting long in the tooth with SAR, but uh, I still enjoy it. Keeps you uh, healthy and, and fit, and uh, I really enjoy doing it.
1: You'd need to write a book someday.
2: I've started one. I'm just not a very good writer, like one of our other guests.
1: (laughs) We'll we'll, we'll introduce you to a writer. Maybe he can help you here. Underneath him on the computer screen is Jim Cuppy. Jim is our treasurer for the Wolf County Search and Rescue. Jim, welcome in.
3: Well, thank you, Tracy.
1: And how long have you been with the Search and Rescue team?
3: You know, I believe it was about four years ago. I was taking a class with you and Craig, a scout tracker class. We got talking about SAR teams, and I asked if you knew of any good teams in the area. You gave me John Mays' name, and, well, it's been four years now that I've been doing Search and Rescue with John.
1: Jim is instrumental for the team. He, he does all our books and, and everything, and then he shows up to majority of the events, and I'm so glad that he joined the team. And uh, bottom right is our fearless leader, Craig Toddle. Craig, welcome in.
0: Hey, thanks for being here. It's good to be on this side of the microphone this time.
1: Well, we'll, we'll jump you in here real quick. Craig, meet John. John, meet Craig. Greg, John's going to write a book one day, so he needs to talk to you.
0: <laughs> Let's get together. <laughs> that Sounds good. Huh? You got my number. Text me anytime. <laughs> yes, I do. Uh,
1: John, I guess we'll start with you. The topic that we're going to be covering is the Eastern Kentucky floods. And one of the first teams to respond, I guess, was Wolf County. And you responded with the swift water team of the, of the Wolf County search and rescue team. Before we get into the details of the flooding, tell us a little bit about the Swiftwater team. How do you get on the team? What kind of training? What kind of gear does the team have?
2: Yeah, it's a good question, Tracy. It's uh, it's kind of interesting how our Swiftwater team came to be. It actually uh, resulted from a uh, flooding event that we had in Wolf County, I'm guessing 10 to 12 years ago. Uh, a young child had been ran over on the opposite side of the uh, flooded Brid River here. And uh, we really didn't have a good way to access them. We did some things at that time that, uh, you know, would make me cringe today. You know, we had to get across that uh, flooded, you know, a lot of backwater, but then there was a bridge that was underwater that we had to cross. And we learned really quick that you need to be trained and have the proper equipment uh, to do that type of work. So, you know, I said at that time, we're going to get the training that we need and start uh, acquiring the equipment that we need. And that's kind of how the Swiftwater team began. I eventually became a, a Swiftwater instructor for the state. So I, I helped teach uh, Swiftwater classes to to other rescuers from around the state, primarily with Floyd County uh, Rescue. But, you know, we, we have several pieces of equipment that we bring to bear during a flooding event. Uh, our primary tool is the uh, Zodiac uh, rescue boat uh we have about a 14 and a half foot i should say we did have uh, we'll get into that later <laughs> we did have a 14 and a half foot uh, zodiac that's that's great for this type of work recently acquired a uh, john boat that could be used more you know in backwater situations where the water's not quite so violent but anyone that's uh, on the team that's that's a swiftwater tech has to take a swiftwater class typically those are a 3 day class and much like our uh, technical rope rescue classes, you know, when you come out of that class, you know, you're not a steely eyed swift water rescuer. Uh, it honestly takes practice and experience. And I will say I learned a tremendous amount, uh, coming out of this most recent flooding event. We had one last year and then this one and there's, there's no training like experience. So once you get on the water, you know, you really start to learn how important that is. Uh so, we try to get all of our um uh, our team members to refresh uh their swift water skills every couple of years we unfortunately, we really don't have the water here to teach the class. The red river is kind of feast or famine uh it's usually just too crazy of water or it's you know it's a kind of a knee bumper you know, just not deep enough to do. So we usually venture up to our flint friends at uh, Floyd County and uh, participate in their class on the Big Sandy River. And they teach an excellent class.
1: How many team members are on the, or classified as Swiftwater?
2: Yeah, I think we've got probably um, 12 to 14 would be my guess. Uh, some of those fairly new uh, without pulling up the roster, but it's somewhere in the neighborhood.
1: And for those that are not familiar, can you describe what a Zodiac boat is?
2: Yeah, it's basically an inflatable raft, kind of a V-hole inflatable raft with a metal floor. On our particular boat, we had a 20-horsepower motor, which we learned um, is really not big enough for the type of water we've been involved in recently. But the one nice thing about the Zodiac that I learned during this recent floating event, they bounce quite well off trees. Uh, So if you're in in a uh, thick environment, uh, unlike a metal boat that, you know, if you get smashed into something, uh, it may cave it in. Zodiac bounces back. Um, downside, they do get holes, and as we discussed briefly earlier, uh, our Zodiac suffered some of those holes. But they there's several different chambers in those, so if you get a hole in one, they still float, which is nice. but It's just a great uh, great tool uh, for the type of area that uh, that we get involved in. It and they make some that are metal bottoms uh, that are a little more durable, but a lot more expensive as well. So,
0: John, when when you get a team like this for Wolf County. Does that mean you all have to respond as a team, Wolf County team, or can each of these individuals respond to other agencies, units, and they put them wherever they are needed?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Most of the teams in this area have very similar training, so I would feel comfortable in, you know, if someone tells me they've trained with Floyd County or, you know, one of the other agencies in the area, I would be comfortable uh, with putting them, you know, on our boat. Uh, in fact, we had a, uh, a state trooper, uh, that got in our boat that had no training, but we needed him, uh, during this, uh, recent flooding event. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But, you know, as long as you're not the, the driver of the boat or what I consider the swimmer, uh, the person that may get in the water, you know, you need to make sure those two individuals are, are put together right and they know what they're doing. Um, if you have to go in the water after someone, you need to be physically fit enough to do it. And know how to rescue yourself, uh, in the event you can't get back in the boat, which is always a real possibility. So, you know, I, I think everyone that was involved in this recent flooding realizes, you know, how important the training is. It's scary. I mean, that's the only way to put it. When you get on something like that, it's, it's, and I've told several news agencies, it's, it's really terrifying. Uh, when you get on that kind of water,
1: John, are you tethered to the boat?
2: Oh, no, no, no. In fact, you, you don't want to be tethered to anything. Uh, You know, if you get in the water and you have a rope on you, you know, it'll essentially pull you under. It's okay to hang on to a rope. I mean, we use ropes to do swift water crossings. It's called a tension diagonal. You essentially have a, a carabiner snapped over a rope with a prusik that you're hanging on to and you just slide across. But if you need to let go, you can. Because if you don't have the capability of letting go of that, uh, you know, that's just going to pull you right under the water. So uh we avoid being tied to anything. That's a good question.
1: Here's a scenario. If you're midstream, someone falls out of the boat, they're away from the boat, they can't grab back into the boat. What is their process of self-survival, self-rescue?
2: Yeah, well, the main thing is if you're floating down a river, you want to keep your feet up. Uh, That's kind of in a defensive position. And it also keeps your feet from catching on debris that you might not be able to see. If you think about a rocky river bottom. And we've seen videos of people drowning basically in waist deep water because their feet get hung underneath a rock and you can stand up momentarily, but you can't get your feet loose. And eventually the strength of the current will push you over into the water. Uh, So you keep your feet up uh, and you can use that to push off of things. Uh, You know, if you come up on a tree or something like that, you can kind of push off of it and continue your path down. Uh, the biggest, uh, fear for me is what we call strainers, uh, in a river. And we saw many of those in the event that we encountered, uh, you know, last month. Um, uh, you know, it was homes, for instance, uh, but any type of large debris that water can go through, but a human cannot, uh, is, is really scary because it'll pull you into it and you can't, you know, you can't get away from it. So the idea is to basically swim at it and get on top of it if you can. Otherwise, it can be a you know really bad situation for you, so you know you think about a tree uh, laying across a strong current, you know the water just goes right through the branches uh, but if you go through that, you know you may get hung up on it and uh, not be able to come out the other
1: side and when you say hung up, not necessarily that the tree itself is holding holding you down which it could, but the mm-hmm. force of the water is just pinning you down against that tree and not letting you. Yeah, up.
2: all the above, honestly. I mean, it could be a limb sticking out that you kind of wrap your body around and the pressure just kind of folds your legs and your waist over it, uh, or you may get sucked under it and then get tangled up and not be able to come out the other side. So definitely bad. And you, you want to avoid those if at all possible.
1: I think that's interesting because most of the quote unquote flooding that we see on news agencies, it's real calm. Mm-hmm. People are just kind of floating out and grabbing people from their porches and bringing them back.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Not necessarily what you all face that night and that morning, I guess. What little bit I saw up there was beyond words, really.
2: Yeah. And, it, you know, and we've seen that, too. You get a lot of what we call backwater, uh, you know, in, in big cities. You know, it's you don't have rivers typically running right down the middle of a the- you know a a large city so you know these these streams and rivers along the side of these cities kind of overflow and it spills into the city streets and you see a lot of cars you know that are uh, flooded out and they can't drive and you know it's not like a you know raging river that you're in of course you know we've seen videos of that occurring as well so it really just depends on where you are and what the situation is
1: yeah absolutely let's get into um the events of the flood anybody's been watching the news this happened about the end of july 26th 7th and 8th somewhere along in there and it was really a flood that just devastated about six or seven counties in eastern kentucky i looked up some of the details on uh, weather.gov just so i could have a little bit of the facts here one thing they said that they are estimating that we had or that area had 14 to 16 inches of rain with most of that falling on the 27th which is the night that you all got called out. They said that the amount of rainfall that fell was 600% above normal. Wow, that's unbelievable. And then it said the um it said the peak rainfall totals of 14 to 20, uh, 14 to 16 inches from the 26th through 29th are historically unheard of. Uh, there's less than 1 in 1000 chance of that amount of rain falling on any given year in a 4-day period. Thus, we kept hearing the one-in-1,000-year 1, flood. That gives you an idea of how devastating it was. I guess let's take off from the 911 uh, call, the dispatch call that came into Wolf County Search and Rescue.
2: I actually will step back just a little bit further than that to the 27th of July. You know, we all ha- heard the um, the weather forecast. You know, they were given chance of, you know, some flash flooding. Uh, you know, and we hear that quite a bit, you know, especially here lately. So you know, it kind of makes your um, radar go up a little bit. But, uh, you know, I wasn't overly concerned about it. You know, went to bed. We didn't do any special preparation like we have done in the past, you know, making sure the boats are pulled out, you know, where we can get to them quickly. Just didn't think it was going to be that kind of event. But went to bed, um, you know, on the night of the 27th, uh, like most of us here, you know, I heard the rumbling, thunder, lightning, heard some rain, still didn't think too much about it. Not, um, you know, all that untypical from what we've been seeing here lately. But, You know, I received a phone call. It was sometime around um, 4.30 a.m. on the 28th uh, from our uh, local dispatch office. They had been receiving phone calls from local residents in the county that we live in, but they were they were getting calls. Those people were getting calls from family members in Brethet County. Uh, because they couldn't reach their dispatch. Phone lines were down, uh, different things were going on. So it was like family members calling in trying to get help uh, for their family that was in, in the Breath of County area, which is where we responded to. When dispatch called, my first thoughts were, well, you know, how bad is this? And the, the gauge for me is typically I just look out of my window and I have Swift Creek uh, that runs kind of in front of my house and I have a big bottom there. And, and uh, you know, if it's, we've seen a lot of rain. There's uh, you know, water standing in that field. And when I looked down there, I mean, it was dark, but there were security lights around and I didn't see any water. So I'm like, well, you know, maybe this isn't too bad. So I didn't completely understand what was going on, you know, at the time. Hey, John, we've got a lot
0: of listeners to this podcast that are overseas throughout the country. Would you care to just, you're talking about Wolf County and Barathek County and stuff of that nature. Would you care to tell the listeners how far apart those parts of the world are? Because I think that's yeah, an honestly. interesting aspect
2: of this. Yeah, I mean, I can get into Jackson, uh, which is the, um, you know, the, the city seat for Reddick County, 20, 25 minutes, uh, away from my home. It's a short drive, you know, so it doesn't take very long at all to get there. So it, you know, once again, it was surprising that all these calls were coming in and, you know, we had, we obviously had rain here, but uh, no flooding that I could see whatsoever. So anyway, we, you know, once we got those calls, I immediately, uh, you know, dispatched our team and asked for all Swiftwater techs to respond to uh, what we lovingly call the SAR shack, which is, you know, our bay at the uh, local fire department. And uh, so we rendezvoused there, started getting some people come in and we are all volunteers. So, you know, we, we have lives, we work, we're not at a squad building 24 seven. So it took a few minutes to start getting team members to respond and, and to start hitting our way. And in the meantime, while p- team members were still driving in, we were getting the gear put together, you know, grabbing PFDs, grabbing dry suits, helmets. A um, couple of team members went to get the Zodiac, uh, you know, make sure it was fueled up and ready to go. Uh, and by the time we had all that put together, you know, sometime, you know, I'm guessing 530-ish, you know, when we were ready to start uh, rolling towards Jackson. And, uh, you know, we let our dispatch know that we were uh, responding for mutual aid to a flooding event, and, and Breathitt County had no idea what we were getting ready to uh, drive into at that time.
1: John, at this time, were you in communication with anybody from Breathitt County, which is the county that? area that you all responded to? Any communication whatsoever coming out of the county? No,
2: nothing. The only information we had was family members were calling uh, their family members in uh, Wolf County, stating that they they were in trouble and they needed help.
1: How did you decide where to go?
2: Well, my thoughts were, let's head to Jackson and take a look at the water situation on the way in and then find somebody in emergency management. Uh, and the only place I knew to go to was the uh, local uh, sheriff's office, which was in downtown Jackson. And that's where we went, um, immediately, um, you know, upon arriving and, uh, they were able to locate the uh, local EM director for us that gave us some guidance on, uh, where to uh, position our team.
3: Yeah. Uh, you know, we were talking about the uh, counties and I think one thing that's important to note, um, I work in Breathitt, Perry, and Letcher counties, and one of the things that's common about these counties is this splash flooding that took place is in fairly sharp valleys. So the houses that we're talking about are located along a stream bank, and the stream is fairly docile, uh, maybe four foot deep, five foot deep, uh, and not so far across. But the, uh, sidewalls of these valleys are fairly steep and, uh, I don't know. What would you say, John? Maybe two, three hundred foot elevation changes from Mm -hmm. the, um, from the creek bed to the peaks. And there was so much rain that came down so fast that it just, uh, flooded directly down those slopes and filled up the bottoms where a four foot deep stream bed suddenly turned into a 20 to 30 foot deep, uh, stream.
0: The most of the work you all did was on Troublesome Creek, or on several different ones, John.
3: Yeah, on the
2: twenty eighth, it was all on Troublesome Creek. Um, so yeah, so when we when we finally got up with the um, local EM director for Breathitt County, he was a you know just like any situation like this. I mean, he was overwhelmed with what was happening. I mean, everyone was overwhelmed, and he said he knew there was people in trouble along Troublesome Creek or Lost Branch, which was about seven miles. Uh, I guess that's south on 15, um, you know, on up from Jackson. And he said just go there. Uh, so we, you know, got our team together and, and drove onto that area. But I'll, I'll back up just a little bit on the on the way up there. You know, it was still dark um, when we left Wolf County, and as we were getting closer to Jackson, we started seeing the first, you know, rays of sunlight coming over the mountain tops, and and uh, we started to get some glimpses of what we were going into. Um, we were in an area last year for a hundred year flood, uh, surprisingly enough, uh, in the area of Wolverine, I was keenly aware that we were getting close to it, and I wanted to look at it because I knew what it was like last year, and I wanted to see how you know where was all this water that everyone was talking about. So when we got to that area and uh, looked down there, I was like, "Oh boy, you know, I could tell the water was already higher than what we had dealt with the previous year, so I knew it was bad." You know, once we uh, got pointed towards Lost Creek and started that direction south on 15, we really started to see what was going on. You know, the the light was coming up. uh We had better visibility. Uh We were along the um, North Fork, the Kentucky River, a big section of that road as we left Jackson. You know, water was approaching the edge of 15 already in places. You know, I knew it was bad, but until we really got to Troublesome Creek and, uh, you know, parked our vehicle and got out and you could hear what was going on. um, And it's a little hard to describe. And it was just really loud. I mean, and I'll be honest with you, for the first week after this event, and I did several news stories and I was telling people, you know, that we were operating on the North Fork of the Kentucky River. I thought we were on the river the entire day we were there, but it was Troublesome Creek. Uh, Just like Jim was saying, it's a creek that's normally, two to four feet deep and we were walking across it a week ago and on that day it was 44 feet deep so i mean it was just water everywhere and you know without pulling out a map to see where the uh the creek versus the river was running you really had no idea so it was it was a really bizarre situation you know that we drove up on
0: and this might be what you were getting at jim and and just help me understand guys why why was the water backing up i know that there was a, a a large amount of water just simply coming down, and that's part of the issue. But why didn't the water go somewhere else? What's it, what is Troubles and King Creek dumping into that it got backed up so quickly?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question, Greg. And, and again, I, I think it comes back to two factors. One, the uh, huge volume of water, which was rolling down off of those sharp hills down to the creek basin, that it just couldn't drain out of those drainage valleys quick enough. And the second thing is the uh, because of that intense water, it was smashing things. So there is one family that I talked to. They were in a mobile home that uh, was torn loose from its footing and washed downstream. So they're floating downstream in their mobile home when it smashed up against trees. So that creates uh, debris fields and strainers like John was talking about. A lot of the houses are on the far uh on the other side of the creek from the uh where the road comes through those valleys and a lot of those houses have suspension bridges cable uh suspension walking bridges and those just trapped all of that lumber and just unbelievable amount of trash that's uh been torn loose and is flooding down these valleys and created these incredible dams and it it's the the force is just amazing, the destruction that you could see. And it was really a three-dimensional search environment when we went in there after the water had come down. We have one of our team members that took a picture of a uh, a residential refrigerator, which is probably 25, 30 feet up in the air, stuck in a tree. So just just phenomenal power and the the depth uh, of the water in this area was so unusual uh, for that area.
1: And it's something that didn't happen over two or three hours. I talked to one gentleman. He said that he had probably about 10 minutes to grab some things out of his home, wake his wife up, grab his kids. And by the time they got out the front door to the car, it was already up almost over the tires and barely got the car out. And he said it was probably no more than 10 minutes. He said it just came up so quick.
2: Yeah, when we... um. Got off Highway 15, pulled off on the 476, which that was the road that Troublesome Creek ran along. Uh, we really couldn't pull very far because as soon as we started down that road, I mean, the water was already up you know, to that level. But that was, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, the sounds uh, that were going on, um, you, know, you could hear and see homes coming down the creek and breaking apart essentially in front of you when they would hit the bridge there at 15. You could hear dogs barking in some of these houses as they came down, and we were still assessing what was, you know, what was going to be our plan of action here. Um, there was a local fire department. To be honest, it was such a crazy environment. I, I don't even know which fire department it was, but uh, they had a small uh, Zodiac boat. Uh, that I think they ran maybe one uh, rescue operation, kind of kind of along the roadside. You know, the flooded part of four seventy six. They came back, and we were talking to them, and uh, they were kind of letting us know the uh, number of residents that, that lived in this area, and and uh, they, were, they had received some, um, you know, some communication. I don't know how they got that about people stranded in an attic, and we'll get to that in a minute, but uh, so we were going to follow them uh, initially so they could kind of show us a path up this creek, you know, because we had no idea where we were going. And uh, unfortunately, um, their boat was brand new, but they basically cut it down um, on some debris. Uh, they could they couldn't go back out with us, so they had to pull their boat out of the water. And uh, we were we were left there really to figure this out at this point on our own.
1: When you say uh, cut it down, you mean too damaged beyond?
2: Yeah, yeah. They they got a puncture or a tear. Basically, the boat deflated. Uh, it was a Zodiac, just like ours, uh, so it wasn't safe to operate any further. You know, Lewis and I, Lewis was what I called my swimmer. Uh, he was at the front of our boat and, uh, I was the boat operator. Uh, and we had a few other team members, a couple other Swiftwater techs were there with us at the time, but you know, I just determined that Lewis and I probably had the most experience. He's also a, um, KYM Swiftwater instructor. So we thought if anybody's going to go initially, it's going to be us. And so we, we just took off and, uh, started up, you know, the, the, the creek and I still want to call it a river <laughs> because that's what it seemed like that day we started up through there really hadn't got very far at all and encountered the uh the first home uh with people uh flooded in it uh it was a family of i think at least four if not five two adults and maybe two or three children uh they were standing in i don't know uh, knee deep uh or deeper water they weren't like out in the middle of this uh, creek at this point they were closer to to the mountainside it wasn't too far for them for them to be able to get to land but the water was too deep for, for them to be able to do it. So we loaded them up, uh, you know, immediately uh, pulled up next to their deck and, and got them in the boat and then took them back down to what we call our incident command location or staging area and dropped them off and then headed back upstream again. And it, it continued to get worse the further up we went. As you kind of got away from Highway 15, it got a little more woodsy, uh, more trees to deal with. You know, we really had to find a path to get up there because we didn't know, you know, where the Creek was, what we were going over. Was it homes? Was it, you know, vehicles, you know, trying to navigate up through that. There was down power lines that you were hoping had no power on it. Some you had to go under some, you went over, uh, you know, trying to get upstream. I think the, uh, the next home we got to was, and these folks were probably in the worst situation of anyone that we actually rescued that day. Uh, there was a man and a woman. They lived in a mobile home. Their home was pretty much completely underwater. It was up to the roof or nearly to the roof. These folks had to get outside of their home and they were hanging on to uh, an electrical guy wire, basically the uh, support wire that comes off an electric pole. And they were up to their neck in water. They'd been in the water for, for quite a while. I mean, she was hypothermic, shivering, couldn't get herself in the boat. Neither one of them could. Actually, the the gentleman had a fairly severe uh, laceration to his bicep just from debris that had hit him. So my swimmer was able, you know, I kept the boat in position, and um, he was able to essentially reach down and just drag them into the boat one at a time. And then immediately we started back uh, to the staging area with those two to drop them off and try to get them some medical attention. We were really concerned about both. You know, and we had EMS come over, pick them up, and, and start assessing those two individuals.
1: What do you carry in the boat to provide for first aid for these people?
3: We'll be back after a quick break.
0: Hey, guys and gals, a quick break in our episode to talk about a game changer in outdoor cooking, the Fire Maple Backpacking and Camping Stove System. Whether you're hiking, fishing, or even prepping for emergencies, this portable pot and jet burner is a must-have in your gear. Best part? It's nearly half the price of a comparable Jetboil stove system. Thanks to its leading heat exchange technology, you'll experience reduced boiling times by up to 30% compared to traditional stoves, even in windy conditions. That means more time enjoying the outdoors and less time cooking. Are you ready to upgrade your outdoor cooking game? Click the link in the description now to grab yours. Trust me. Your outdoor adventures will never be the same.
2: You know what? Normally, I always carry, carry a medical kit with me. I'll just be honest. On this day, it was just so crazy and so chaotic. Uh, I mean, I was more worried about PFDs. I was just grabbing every PFD we could get and put on the boat just to take the people.
1: So as you approach these people, I guess the first thing is try to get them in the boat, but then get the... Flotation device on them.
2: Yeah, where they were already in the water, there was no way we could get a PFD on them. I mean, they were already up to their neck and, and nearly gone. I mean, I didn't think they were going to hang on much longer. I, I was thinking in my head, how are we going to defeat if, if either one of these come off this wire? You know, how are we going to run them down on this river and get them in the boat? um So the main priority right then was to just get them one at a time and drag them in. And it was no small chore with the water pushing against them and trying to get them in the boat. So it took some doing. Uh, but once we got them in, you know, we put PFDs on them before we started transporting them back down the river.
1: So whenever you pull up to those two people, how were you holding the boat, just with the motor?
2: Just the motor. You try to match the speed of, of the, and once again, I keep calling it a river. Uh, you try to match the speed of the creek so you're just staying in position, essentially, and hopefully you don't move around.
1: But now later on in, the, I guess, in the operations, you all determined that that motor really wasn't powerful enough to get, I guess, crosswater.
2: Yeah, I would say um, coming downstream was more challenging for me um, operating the boat than going upstream because you have the creek pushing you, so you're going at a faster speed. And if you're in an area where, you know, you have a lot of debris or trees, and like I said earlier, we had to get in trees quite often just to miss large debris like homes, shipping containers, things like that that were come down the main channel, you had to avoid that. Uh, so if you're coming downstream with a loaded boat, you know, in some cases we had, four or five residents in there, plus, you know, my swimmer and I, you know, it's a lot of weight in that boat and trying to navigate around uh, tight objects, at, you know, 20 horsepower motors, you make a turn and the, the creek's pushing against you sideways. It would push you into things before you could, uh, you know, have enough uh, horsepower basically to, to avoid it. That's where the uh, Zodiac was really nice because it would, it would tend to bounce off of those, uh, you know, obstacles that we would sometimes, uh, you know, encounter. Yeah, it was it was pretty crazy.
1: So you all made your second stop, grabbed a, uh, two individuals, and then you took them back to what I'm calling I.C. I guess to the EMS yeah. for first aid service. Yeah. Then what? Y'all just turn around and head right back?
2: Yeah, turned around and headed right back upstream again. You know, no idea how many residents were up in there, and you know, we're talking hundreds of homes. Schools, I mean, I, you know we're not from there, so really no idea. Our plan was just to check every single home as we went up and if we found someone that needed help, we got them, dropped them off and go back. Um, so on this next evolution, and you know, and they all kind of blurred together, but I believe it was the third or fourth evolution, uh, we had heard about some people being trapped in their attic. And we knew if that was the case, we were gonna have to try to get into that attic some way. Cause I mean, the water was you know up over their doors and windows. So we grabbed a chainsaw off of the uh, our SAR truck and put it in the boat. And at this point, we had a um, KSP officer uh, that showed up uh, that said he would go with us because um, KSP aviation unit and the National Guard were coming into the area, and we wanted to be able to communicate with them. So he said he would go. So we put him in a, uh, you know PFD, got him on the boat, and we headed upstream. And he may still regret going with us. I don't know. It was it was, it was a pretty crazy run that we had there, but. Um, we headed upstream. They, they'd given us a description of this home. You know, they said it had a, a brown colored roof, I think a brown, orange colored siding. So we were just, I mean, that was our focus right then was to try to get to this house because we knew people were in the attic and they're in serious trouble. So we finally made it to them. And I mean, it took some doing to get up through there. But once we found that house, we realized really quickly it had a tin roof. So the chainsaw wasn't going to do us much good at that point. We made contact uh, with them. They had a vent opening uh, in the roof, and they were yelling at us through that vent. And at the same time this was going on, uh, a house right next door, people were screaming for help. This is one of the toughest things because being the chief of the team or whatever your position with the team might be, when you have multiple individuals in multiple dwellings all are screaming for help, you have to make decisions really quick. Where am I going to go? You know, who are we going to save and who are we not? And that's that's a tough decision to make. So the people that were next to them, I wanted to see what their situation was because I knew the people in the attic were at least, you know, somewhat above water at this point.
1: The people in the attic, what level was the water on their house at this time?
2: It was up to the guttering on the house, on to the roof. And it so
1: was a, I'm assuming it's a one story house. They were in the attic water to the attic.
2: Gosh. yeah. Uh, yes, yes. So th- this other when this I heard these other people yelling. I looked and they had a couple of kids. So that really changed the situation for me. And so okay, I'm I'm going to go up here and see what their situation is. So we took the boat just upstream. You know, maybe another fifty yards. They were kind of neighbors. Uh, so we drove up, and uh, and I didn't realize this at the time, but they were in a two story house with like a big garage underneath it. And uh, the water was just up to the deck that they'd walked out on. It really wasn't into the residence at this time. And it was looked like a fairly sound residence. So I didn't think it was going to float off like some of the mobile homes that we'd encountered were doing. So I, at that time, I said, well, let's try to get the people out of the attic because I didn't know how deep the water really was for them. And they had an elderly lady in there. She was eighty. Three I believe, and that was a concern so at that point we went back and started working uh, on the five residents that were stuck in the attic. We had asked them to kick out uh, that vent opening to see if they could exit the roof and come down you know that metal roof to our boat. They knocked it out, but they couldn't fit through it and the elderly lady obviously couldn't get out of that so that uh, that plan kind of got scrapped and about the same time the National Guard uh showed up overhead, which was. You know, a huge relief for me. We've trained with the National Guard. Those folks are outstanding in what they do. And, you know, the, um, one of the uh, medical people on that uh, helicopter, Jeremy Lowe, um, you know, we worked with him quite a bit. And I, I recognized him. He was sitting on the – he had his feet hanging out at the side of the Black Hawk and I knew immediately it was him. And um, we tried to make radio communication with them, but we couldn't. Uh, so we kind of had to fall back just to hand signals, uh, you know, and just some motions, you know, what we were trying to do. And we were pointing, you know, that this was the residence we needed to work on. And and uh, so they ended up lowering Jeremy down to the roof. And, man, I had to give it to him because that roof was wet, was slick, it was metal. And uh, he straddled the uh, the the eave of that uh, roof and was able to start getting those people out from that opening. Um, well, we tried to get them out of that opening, But he he couldn't uh, get them out either. So he was working with them and finally figured out he just couldn't get them out of that hole. And uh, that's when we decided to try another option. So we took our boat downstream a little bit to like a window towards the back of the house. It was still above water, knocked that out and instructed the people upstairs to come down. And it was, I would say, chest deep water better on them as they came down. And um, we extracted them out of that window. And then drove back upstream and put them on the roof. Uh, we threw a handline up to Jeremy so they could use it as a handline to climb up. So he kind of wrapped that around his waist and held on to it, and they used that to climb the roof to get to his location where they could be hoisted uh, out with a helicopter.
1: That was one tough eighty-three-year-old lady. Then
2: very tough lady. She was she was a real trooper. I mean, I was scared to death pulling her in the boat, you know, because I mean we were we were in a really bad situation, and and you know it was hard to keep the boat in position and it was really just trying to get her out as easily as you could. And but boy, she was tickled to get out of that house. So, I mean, she, and she went up that, the side of that roof, like a billy goat. And I mean, I like look at her go. I mean, it was just, it was unbelievable. And the other obstacle we were encountering in addition to the debris and, and the the raging current was this, uh, the wash below, uh, below this black Hawk. I mean, it was, it's like being in a hurricane basically. Uh, you know, we were getting blasted with, uh, you know, water and uh, debris, you know, coming off homes and, uh, you know, off tree limbs and everything else that was around us. Uh, I know most everyone here has been around uh, Black Hawks one time or another, and and you can imagine what that's like uh, trying to navigate a boat underneath that. So we, we kind of realized that we can't keep the boat in position here very well, but we wanted to be in a position where we could respond if one of them slipped off the roof, you know, either the guardsman or one of the people we were rescuing. So we kind of pulled our boat away from that cone of air that comes down from underneath that Blackhawk, so we could be somewhat more stable. And then once they would do a hoist, then we would go back down to the window, get another uh, resident, take them back up, and let them climb up the roof. And uh, we did that three times, and there was two two uh, family members still remaining. And uh, we encountered a, a mechanical problem with our boat. Uh, this isn't something we've talked a lot about, but I think it's worthy of mentioning. Uh, we think it was probably got some water uh, in the gas or in the motor from all the, um, the wash that we were getting sprayed with from the boat, from the black Hawk and our motor quit. And uh, it was, it was a really scary moment because we were right above a sharp bend uh, in the Creek with a ton of strainers just below us. And when it quit, I told everyone get ready to swim. I said, I'm not going into that. I would rather take my chances swimming, trying to make it to a tree uh, you know, versus the boat going into that and just capsizing. And, uh, so while it was going on, I, I primed it a couple of more times and was able to get it started just enough to shoot us over into some trees. And we just grabbed a hold of trees at that point. And, uh, we were hanging on for dear life, just like everyone else trying to figure out, I thought maybe we'd ran out of gas initially, uh, cause we'd just been going for three to four hours at this point, pretty much nonstop. Ah, uh, full throttle, pretty much the whole time. I Was like, well, did I miss that? You know, did the did the gas run out? But grabbed a hold of the tank, still had about a quarter tank of gas in it. So fortunately, the the state trooper that was uh, in the boat with us was able to radio up uh, to the National Guard helicopter, and they radioed back to our staging area. Uh, and by this time, the Lexington Fire Department had showed up on scene, and uh, they had a couple of boats. We asked them to bring us some fresh fuel. And uh, they brought us a new tank of gas. We were able to uh, continue boat operations. after we got some new gas. But one of the more incredible things that occurred during all this, and we really didn't even get to see it, uh, just glimpses of it because we were kind of around that bend at this point hanging on. But uh, Jeremy, the uh, the medic on that Blackhawk that I was telling you about, they lowered another crewman down, and Jeremy jumped in the creek. Uh, He inflated his uh, horse collar PFD. And uh, just had a hand line that he was hanging on to and floated down to that window that we knocked out and extracted those remaining two by himself and hoisted them right out of the water. Uh, so he saved those two people by himself. I mean, one of the most heroic things that I've ever heard about doing. I mean, that would have been the last place that I would want it to have been was in that creek. And I mean, that man jumped off the top of that house into that to get those last two people out. Just unbelievable on his part. And I know they've really received a lot of praise and accolades for his heroic activities. You know, not just him, but all the people that were flying that day. But it's pretty, pretty incredible story.
1: The video of that has made some national news, I think. Is that the one that you're talking about?
2: Yeah, that's the, um, that's the one with the uh, 83-year-old being hoisted out. Yeah.
1: Do you have access to that video? I do. I do. Can you provide that to Craig and we'll put it up on our Facebook page? Is that something we can do, Craig?
0: Yeah, if we have rights to it, which it sounds like it's in public domain, John, that yeah. is, it, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, we can we can do that, no problem.
2: Yeah, it's been on every news station around, I think. So yeah, it wouldn't be a problem at all. So, but once they the uh, we got our boat started and they got those two remaining uh, subjects out of the attic, we went back and got the uh, the mother and the two children that were in that house next to them. Probably took us. 45 minutes to, to complete that, that five rescue operation. And by the time I got to them, water was knee deep in their house. That was terrifying to me. Cause I'm like, you know, this could have been really bad for them. Um, you know, in just that short period of time, the Creek had risen that much more. Um, but fortunately we were able to get them out, uh, get PFDs on them, uh, get them in the boat and then take them back down to the staging area. And then we went back again, this just, it's kind of, <laughs> you put this, this play on uh, on repeat at this point. So take them down and go back uh, and just continue picking people out of homes. You know,
1: do you have any idea how many runs you made up the creek?
2: We had counted up uh, that morning by the time that we went back and stopped for a break, which was sometime 12 o'clock or so. Uh, somewhere that we had picked up was around 25 total kids, adults, all of that. By the end of the day, and, and there was more people. Eventually, the, the 15 got covered by water. So nobody else could get to where we were at. Uh, so it was, we were going with what we had. And it was basically us. Clark County uh, Fire Department had some people that were assisting uh, with the evacuation of people we were bringing back. People on the water was primarily us. Uh, Lexington Fire Department had a couple of boats, and Fish and Wildlife had a couple of boats. Um, so about those that-
1: boats running. Up something like
2: that yeah i believe it was four yeah and we were all running uh evolutions i think between the boats and the uh the helicopter crews i uh, heard a number somewhere over 100 people uh, were rescued on troublesome creek that day and that's uh, amazing yeah we ran operations uh, well honestly our boat i kind of mentioned this earlier uh, we hit so much debris uh, on this day with the boat like i said electric lines trees you name it, we were hitting it. It actually broke the transom on the Zodiac. Uh, that's for those that may not know, that's basically the back part of this boat that the uh, motor attaches to. So the motor was hanging on by a thread. I mean, you could, it, you know, it would wobble. And uh, I, I thought at some point the motor was just going to break off and go into the creek. So we decided, you know, that afternoon, uh, it was, I don't know, Five o'clock, four or five o'clock that we just, we didn't feel safe taking the boat back on the water again, or at least not that far up the creek uh, with the condition that it was in.
1: So did the damage happen while you were up creek? Yeah. And you had to make your way back down creek? Well, it
2: was, it was, um, you know, a culmination of events throughout the day. You know, it just continued to get worse, Um, you know, as you hit more and more, you know, debris coming down, you know, every time you hit something. I mean, I, it's, it's it's hard to put it in words what it was like up in there. But I mean, I, like I said, at one point, we were going underneath electrical power lines. And then the next moment, we were going over top of them. That's how high the water was, depending on where the poles were. Prop on that boat looks like you'd taken it to a grinder, basically just shaved it down. I mean, you could hear when you would hit power lines, you could just hear it underwater. You know, he's just going right down the, the power lines and just chewing it up. So... And it, it was just unavoidable. I mean, you couldn't get away from all, all the stuff that you had to to try and avoid that day.
1: Was that the only boat that Wolf County had on the creek?
2: It was. Yeah.
1: Well, we had
2: a a, a small inflatable uh, that was donated to the team that we always just carry on top of our, what we call SAR 1, our big box truck. Uh, that was utilized to transport people. Once we would bring them back to the staging area, Highway 15 was flooded. And we had to get people out for medical care, what have you, basically just to get them to safety. But we used that small boat, uh, and then we would have some team members in uh, dry suits that would pull that boat with those civilians uh, in it uh, across the flooded roadway until they could get to an area where they could be transported. They ended up bringing in some buses and were transporting the people out that we were rescuing as the day progressed.
1: So Wolf County and, and Clark County and Lexington Fire Department was in this area how many other areas were going on that was similar to this? Do you have any idea? A bunch.
2: A bunch. A bunch. Yeah. But, you know, unfortunately I was I, I you know, Jim may have a better idea on that than I because he's he's been into some other areas, um, you know, doing wellness checks and different things. But for sure, you know, Leslie County, Perry County, um, I'm guessing some in Lee County, mainly uh eastern, you know, four or five counties in eastern Kentucky were dealing with similar events. And, and, you know, the problem is, you know, a lot of these places were flooded off. So, I mean, you had to go with what you had. You know, our vehicles, we got flooded in. Uh, we couldn't leave from the location we were at. Uh, we were on a little high spot on Highway 15, and both sides of that became flooded. The day continued. And and we had a real concern, one of a Land Rover Defender last year. And uh, we had taken both of our vehicles, including that one, and that's the one we pulled the Zodiac with. And it was parked there on that little stretch of 15, and and they were predicting the, the creek not to crest until around midnight. And uh, at 3 or 4 o'clock, the water was within a foot, maybe two, of uh, reaching the vehicle. I, I was trying to see if I could get a rollback or something brought into the area that was tall enough to come across Highway 15 and put our Land Rover on it. And get it out of there because i I, you know it's a very expensive vehicle that we can't replace and and so i really had to make a decision do it had a snorkel so i knew i could drive it out if it didn't float but you're basically destroying the vehicle by doing that it's going to flood the interior and all the electronics uh so i had to make a decision either keep it here and hope the water stops or drive it out and know that you're going to do some major damage to it at that point i just opted to leave it here i said i'm not going to knowingly destroy this vehicle you know if the flood comes up and gets it you know so be it we'll be safe we can get in our boats and get out of here but so fortunately for us the water crest uh sometime around four four thirty or five it didn't come up anymore uh and, and eventually we were able to drive out of there you know sometime around uh 10 or 10 30 that night
1: so once you got back with the boat whenever the transom was damaged the boat was damaged and you pulled it back into ic there uh, instant command what kind of events happened after that for the rest of the day
2: yeah, so, you know, there was a few more runs that occurred right up until darkness. The National Guard was still plucking people off the side of uh, mountains. Uh, you know, people had gotten out of their homes, made it up to high grounds, uh they were in wooded areas. Uh I actually witnessed uh I think it was the um uh, one of the Tennessee uh Blackhawks was conducting a hoist across the other side actually on the North Fork of the Kentucky River and uh some people were stranded on the hillside and they came in to uh to hoist them out and they actually had a tree strike uh with that blackhawk so the uh the rotor on the blackhawk hit a large tree and i was sitting there watching this happen i mean i just saw debris going everywhere and i'm like oh my gosh you know is this thing going to crash they immediately aborted the hoist and flew off <laughs> you know they they had immediately go and, and get the aircraft checked out you know anytime you have a strike like that you have to go get it checked. so and then ultimately, uh, they, we were able to get, uh, I think the Fish and Wildlife boat uh, was able to make access uh, to those two individuals. And they got them with a the boat because we'd already put the boats up at this point. It was almost dark. We decided we were not going to run any operations, uh, you know, after uh, night fell. It was just entirely too dangerous. There was a small school or something that was not very far upstream. Uh, and there was 25 or 30 people there so we did put our boat back on water kind of after we decided that we would not run it anymore due to that transom issue we knew this was fairly close and a little calmer water it wasn't way upstream and it wasn't in the main channel that we could use it just to help get those people out before darkness fell uh so between us and the Lexington Fire and the Fish and Wildlife guys uh you know a few other team members uh, Drew and some Tommy and some other guys that, uh, were there, you know, did evolutions in that area and, uh, got those folks
1: out. How I many people can be in a boat in the Zodiac? Uh,
2: you know, it depends on their size, two rescuers and four residences, but I mean, it'll hold them, but it's just, you know, your maneuverability really gets compromised. Uh, the more weight you put in it, you know, I had to refuse a, um, one lady was on her roof and, um, this was later on in the day after the five that we'd gotten out of the attic and the other three that we went and got and it was her and her son and she had a large dog and uh she wanted to know if she could bring her dog and i'm like well how big's the dog and she said it's over 100 pounds and i'm like we can't take the dog you know i said this is still an act of rescue and progress here i can't jeopardize a seat you know for a for a canine unfortunately because i love dogs and that broke my soul and actually i went back to that house a week later and found that lady to make sure her dog was okay but uh, I said, just put some water out, you know, some food out. It's upstairs. It'll be fine. Uh, you know, this water will be down tomorrow. You can come back and and uh, hopefully you'll be able to rescue the animal. And she understood. She was perfectly okay with it. Um, you know, but it's uh, just one of those deals, you know, you can only take so much. And, you know, if you got small children, you can load it up with, with small kids as long as you have PFDs for them. And some of the pictures I'm sure you've seen, I mean, you know, in some cases, you know, people, that, as the day went on and the... All the ones that were in immediate danger of of dying, essentially, had been taken care of that we knew about. Then you're getting people just out of the area. So, you know, we were finding homes up in some of these little hollers or valleys uh, where people lived. You know, they had no way to get out. They had no electric, no phone service, and they just wanted to get the heck out of there any way they could. So then it was about getting those people out. And those folks wanted to bring stuff so they wanted to get suitcases they wanted to get valuables which i get because they didn't know if the water was still going to continue to rise and if they'd have a home to go back to so some of the pictures you've seen you know that we've shared on social media you'll see some kids and they'll they'll have their little uh spongebob suitcase and you know all their little valuable stuff you know piled into that boat uh you know so we took them downstream and and dropped them off so it it was it was sad i mean it was like You know, these folks are just grabbing what they can grab and and hoping for the best.
1: Well, I can't imagine waking up and having water in your house in 15 minutes and nothing that you can do, nothing you can grab and
2: lose Mm -hmm. everything. No. And I know Jim's talked to several and, you know,
3: they basically said it was like a wall of water coming down the creek on them. Yeah. You know, a couple of people I talked to, I had two different families that talked about their pets uh, because we kind of touched on this, but. Keep in mind that most of these people were in bed. They were, they were, it was nighttime when the water's coming up. And uh, I talked to two families whose pets were in the bedroom with them. Uh, one lady whose house was demolished, she woke up with her cat scratching at the screen, trying to get out of the bedroom. And she stepped out into water, stepped out of her bed into water. Uh, another family it was a dog you know the dog was barking like crazy and wake woke them up and and uh, they realized they had water coming into their house and uh, just the the terror of having that happen at night where you can't see what's going on you've got cloud cover because it's still raining so you it's just pitch black out there you've got no electricity your cell phones doesn't work it just must have been terrifying for these people Yeah, one thing I'll add to that that, uh, you
2: know, was really bothersome to me. I mean, the whole day, a lot of things about it bother you. But, you know, on some of those later runs, uh, well, actually, it was fairly early on. We came across uh, some horses. Uh, A farmer had uh, turned his horses loose. He had five. And he said the only thing he knew he could do was just let them go and hope for the best. And uh, I passed those horses three or four times, you know, taking people out and I intentionally stayed clear of them. They would try to come towards the boat and I would just have to go away. You know, I'm like, I can't get close to these boats. I can't get close to these horses. You know, they could easily sink us or, you know, if they tried to get in the boat, you know, with their hooves and could really do some damage. So we actively avoided them, I'm guessing a couple hours. Eventually things have slowed down a little bit and these horses were still just, They were just swimming in circles, and I'm amazed that horses could swim that long. There was only three at this point, so I guess two had probably either washed on down or drowned. But I said I'm going to try to do something with these horses. I just, you know, we got to do something. We just kind of slowed down a little bit, and it's like I guess like when a person's drowning, they kind of get tunnel vision, so they're really not able to follow directions or follow you. But then that's kind of the way they've been acting. But when I slowed down and I started whistling and uh, whistling and calling, and the horses kind of almost like they snapped out of this. Trance they were in, going in a circle, and they just kind of looked at the boat. And then we just went really slow, and those horses started to follow the boat. We just kept calling, kept calling, stayed a good distance from them because I still didn't want them to be able to reach the, you know, the zodiac. Uh, but they followed us all the way back down to the staging area and actually got out. And I was like, I'm so thankful those three horses were able to survive. Seeing dogs and trees, we tried to grab as many animals as we could. You know, as long you know they were tame enough where we could get them in the boat you know, as the day progressed, and, and, and take them back and just turn them loose. That's really all you could do with them. There was no animal control there. The owners weren't there, so it was just taking them to the shoreline, letting them letting them loose, and hoping they, uh, you know, get picked up by someone at some point.
1: Okay, so does that finish out the operations for day one, I guess?
2: Yeah, I'd say that pretty well covers uh, the, the rescue portion uh, for that day. It was certainly a long day. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, we didn't mention this, but I mean, you're probably getting ready to get into it. But, you know, as it stands right now, you know, 39 people lost their lives in this event, not not just on Troublesome Creek, but in the four or five counties that this impacted. So it's it's really quite amazing. More people did not lose their lives based on the amount of devastation that we saw. But I know Jim can talk more about, you know, kind of the following day's events. I got sidelined a bit. Um, you know, I had an eye injury. Uh, resulting from uh, the activities on the twenty eighth, and kind of took me out of service there for a few days. And, and Jim and some of the other leaders on the team really stepped up and and kind of took uh, took things over and and did did really did really well with it going forward.
1: For those that are listening, I guess you took a hit to the eye branch or tree or something hit you.
2: Yeah, it was um, like we talked about. It was really hard hard to avoid uh, some of that debris and sitting on the side of the zodiac steering it. I didn't have the ability to dive into the Zodiac when large limbs were coming at us, you know, because you're trying to keep the boat, you know, going in the right direction. Paul was with me when that occurred and he actually, uh, ducked, uh, down into the boat and missed the limb. And I just couldn't, I'm a pretty big fella anyway. I couldn't avoid it. And it hit me in the face. Really didn't think too much about it. I mean, it hurt, but I'm like, well, okay, I'm, I'm fine. We had eye protection on helmets, you know, everything. And, you know, really no swelling, just had a little mark on my face. But um, over the next few days, you know, my eye essentially completely swelled shut. The doctors really couldn't determine if it was from the tree strike or poison ivy or uh, just contaminated, uh, you know, water. All of those were in the mix. Uh, and I had all of that going on. <laughs> I think the poison ivy either came from the uh, Black Hawk, you know, being above us and just blowing it out of trees you know, or the side of the hills, or when we would go through trees, the boat would get filled with a lot of debris. And when we would get back to the staging area, we would clean the debris out. So it may have been that I had some Ivy in the boat and, you know, I had gloves on, but you, know, you pick that stuff up, you get the oil on your hands and you're wiping stuff out of your face all day long. So, uh, but had a really bad case of poison Ivy, pretty much anywhere from the neck up because we didn't have dry suits on. So we were protected other than our face mainly.
1: Was there a central command at this point, at the close of day one?
2: We were on an island, so central command was basically us. But but we turned over command, and I was really glad to see the Lexington Fire Department. Their chief was on scene, and those guys know what they're doing. Uh, he was more than willing. I said, would you mind taking over You know, incident command? And he said, I can do that, and he did it, and he did it well. Um, it, you need... You need somebody like that that can really take the bull by the horns and make decisions uh, when tough decisions have to be made.
1: Well, there's so much information that is coming in. You've got to have people that's used to receiving that information, organizing that information, and then being able to disseminate it back out. So the next day, Jim, does that where you come into on Friday?
3: Uh, yeah, but there was a, really a transition of events that, um, that transpired during this crisis. So John's done an awesome job here talking about the chaos that was going on on, on day one, the 28th, Thursday, the 28th. And uh, the 29th was, was more of that. Uh, you still had high water, but the water was beginning to recede. So there were still a lot of emergency operations uh, going on at that time. And as, as John mentioned, Lexington Fire started bringing in resources and they set up a uh, incident command post um, in the Walmart parking lot there in Jackson. So our team then uh, registered with the Lexton Fire Department as a resource to be deployed uh, under their command. So then you enter a period of time where uh, Wolf County Search and Rescue, uh, a number of other search teams, and quite a number of fire departments that were coming in from counties all over the state. At the time that we were there on uh, Saturday morning, there were some 30 teams that were available to deploy. The fire department incident command group was going down those list of emergency calls and dispatching teams out to go investigate. And it was a little bit difficult because um, we had incomplete information. Uh, we might have a name and we knew a a, uh, a road name, but you didn't really know where on the road this house was located. And you didn't know what the emergency was. So um, and, and a lot of times you're you're going in very cold. You're trying to find uh, the property, contact the individuals, find out what their need is. And so for several days, it was a matter of going through that list of 911 calls that had come in and calls to the highway patrol, uh, state police, uh, all, uh, fire departments, and that was all getting aggregated, and teams were being dispatched out to go uh, resolve those issues. So that took place probably 30th, Saturday, Sunday, and and early the following week. The 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 one thing that I want to mention is just the people themselves that we encountered were just amazing the the grace of these people that who were at that point beginning to swamp out the the slime out of their homes and the loss of all of those precious possessions and we'd roll up and um, uh, find our uh, assigned um, uh, dwelling talk to the individuals and almost every single person would say well honey we're doing just fine But if you wouldn't mind, could you go check on so-and-so? Because they really need you more than we do. And here these people are just in devastation. But almost to a person, they would send us elsewhere uh, to go check on a neighbor or a relative, uh, which we did. So, yes, we're knocking off the the tickets that we've been given to resolve the uh, emergency calls. But those would turn into two or three additional calls while we were out. For instance, uh, one of our assignments, we came around in our truck, we came around a bend and we uh, found a van that um, had slid off the road and was uh, sitting almost ready to tip over and slide down a hill. And inside it was an elderly gentleman. I got our truck stopped, got out and tried to walk over to that vehicle. And the slime on the roads from the, the muddy water was just incredible. I could barely stand and barely walk in my boots to get over there. The road was so greasy. So no wonder that this guy ran off the road. But that turned into a, a road rescue where we pulled in two vehicles and we uh, stabilized his van with tow straps and ropes uh, to keep it from dumping over. And then opened a uh, passenger side and brought him across through the van. Uh, out that passenger side and got him um, in a ATV that had showed up and, and got him back to his home. But just things like that all day long. One thing I was going to add to that that Jim was
2: saying there, in that transition period, um, once the area was declared a federal disaster area, FEMA comes in. And FEMA brings in a lot of paid rescue teams, you know, these task force teams out of different states so what what we started to see in the days following you know the initial event is you know these large professional SAR teams from other areas started coming in and doing a lot of the i guess the continuation of some of the rescue work and searching for uh, survivors uh, you know in creeks and different things and they, and they do a great job and then a lot of the local teams and agencies were doing a lot of these wellness checks and things like that that Jim's kind of describing here so Kind of a lot of going on. And then, you know, once you kind of get past, you know, this first week or so or maybe 10 days, I don't know how long it was, Jim, uh, before, you know, some of the FEMA rescue ass- assets started to, to move on and move out of the area. Then a lot of that got turned back over to local uh, rescue agencies, um, you know, such as Wolf County and Lee County and Powell County and, you know, many others
3: uh, around the eastern part of the state, you know, started doing a lot of that work. John's right. Uh, it, um, the federal resources were available for about a week. And I guess their assignment was, um, very much one of resolving the emergency situations. And at that point, at the end of that week, we were now transitioning into recovery situations and, um, uh, beginning the process of dealing with the devastation and getting people in better housing and some things like that. So that ended the, um, the, the FEMA paid assets uh, assignment and they cleared out. And as John mentioned, uh, turned it over to a local, a local manager, Lexington fire also returned to Lexington and uh, with their job being finished. And so at that point you had Kentucky emergency management uh, individuals um, beginning to task out and reach out to fire departments, reach out to our team to uh, deal with issues that were still uh, unresolved. Um, One of the things that we were involved in, John mentioned there were 39 fatalities, uh, but unfortunately there are two ladies that have been unaccounted for. And so our team uh, was tasked to um, do some search work to try to find one of those individuals. Uh, Two other teams were tasked for the other uh, lady about 10 miles from our our work area. So we set up um, a team and processed a, a number of searches scouring again back on Troublesome Creek, looking for a a missing individual there. Yeah, just to put it in perspective how challenging it is to
2: really find someone that uh, has unfortunately, uh, you know, is either missing or drowned from a flooding event. Uh, One individual that was found on Troublesome Creek had actually washed down 20 miles uh, from another county, uh, from Knott County. So it kind of gives you an idea about how far someone can travel You know, when water's uh, at that level, we have really, really tried uh, to find both of these two missing. And and I've told a lot of agencies, we've never not found someone uh, that we've been looking for. And and, and I hate to say this could be the first, but, you know, it's five, six weeks out and we haven't been able to locate her. Uh, We may go back this week and do a little checking uh, with some aerial resources uh, if it all works out well. But, you know, this long after the event, it's it's really, you know, it's challenging. You know, there's just so much debris. Some of the planning that Jim had done and some others, you know, we executed those plans. We brought in, you know, dogs, cadaver dogs. Uh, We've had excavators in creeks uh, picking apart some of these debris piles. As he said earlier, too, you know, a lot of these uh, homes are on the other side of the creek, and they had these uh, swinging bridges with steel cabling for their walkway. And those things just caught every piece of debris coming down through there. So it made these mountain piles of just, I mean, it could be homes, trees, wood, garbage, you know, you name it. Uh, and it's just deep, you know, 10, 15, 20 feet deep of debris. Someone can be in it. So, you, you you know, if dogs alert on that, then you have to come in and carefully take it apart to try to find them. And uh, that's what we spent last week doing and, we thought, we really thought we'd found one of these individuals, but unfortunately, uh, once we got through that debris pile, uh, you know, we didn't locate her. So it's very frustrating. You know, we want to bring her home for, for her family and, um, you know, both of these ladies. And uh, we don't we don't want to leave anyone out there, but it's a daunting task. We had about six miles of creek to co- cover, and that's the floodplain on both sides. So it's not just the creek. You know, we, we put kayakers, we put uh, our small inflatable. Uh, on the river or on the creek with dogs, canine uh, cadaver dogs, and then had searchers on the ground on both sides of that creek such search, searching the entire floodplain. And it's really rough going. I mean, there's all kinds of debris, hazards that you have to deal with, you know, plus just vegetation, you know, and trees. And, and these folks could be, you know, 20 feet up in the top of a tree potentially. So you're not just searching the ground, you're searching above you as well. Uh, just because of the depth of the water that was occurring. You know, you can imagine 44 feet water level. People can be a lot of places.
1: I have a hard time imagining 44 feet of water coming down in that area. Yeah. So, Jim, what happens after after this point, after a week, two weeks of going in and trying to finalize searches and identify where people are or aren't? how does all, How does all that work? How does it get finalized?
3: Yeah, a great question. We are tasked to search this particular area, but obviously we're Wolf County Search and Rescue, so we're bringing our resources in to to help out in Bretha County, uh, which is where our searches were. So we're working with uh, Kentucky Emergency Management authorities uh, for this area and keeping them posted on what we did. Oh gosh, so we've had two very detailed days where we searched seven, as John mentioned, about seven miles of this stream that covers about 500 acres uh, a floodplain, um, searching in great detail, and then noted any hits that we got from the dog teams. And then we went back on subsequent days to go after those areas where dogs had uh, shown interest. But um, people walking in the woods abreast, searching the shoreline; kayakers in the in the stream, searching the the bank line. Our zodiac also in there with a dog team in the boat. So that we could get up to uh, debris piles so that were in the stream, it's a pretty, pretty grueling, very detailed search that takes place. And you know, really proud of our team. We we always have more turnout for an event like this because everyone wants to do the same thing, and that's to bring this lady home and uh, bring peace to the family. Uh, so it it um, it really breaks our heart when we can't succeed in that. But at this point, we have cleared Troublesome Creek all the way to the Kentucky River, and we're working with Kentucky Emergency Management about uh, uh, next steps that would take us outside of Troublesome Creek.
1: Is that where the potential next-day search is going to be, John, on the continuing on down Troublesome Creek or out into the Kentucky River?
2: Yeah, there's some sections uh, beyond 15 before it goes into the uh, North Fork of the Kentucky River that we would like to, to look at. And uh, there's one field uh, along Troublesome Creek that was quite a large field that uh, we really couldn't get dogs into, at least not during our search activities. Um, So I I pointed that out as a a spot that we should, uh, you know, fly over, take a look at, uh, see if we can spot anything. So it's just uh, it's slow going. I mean, we were up there two full days trying to search, um, you know, that six miles of Troublesome Creek uh, with you know, each time we were there, we had 40 to 50 ground searchers to put it in perspective, plus, you know, six to 10 dogs, uh, you know, and actually ended up having to rescue one of the uh, dog team handlers. Uh, Just, they just got exhausted and, uh, you know, um, uh, got, you know, overheated essentially on the far side of the Creek and and we had to rescue them. So, I mean, it's tough work. It's hot, tedious, and dangerous. Um, You know, we, we, Concern. We have a lot of concern about, uh, especially the, the the days and in the, the first few weeks following the event, uh, because the the material that you're dealing with is just contaminated uh, with everything you can imagine. All chemicals, uh, you know, you name it. Um, that muck and uh, the water is all contaminated. I mean, we were really concerned. Anytime someone just got a scratch, you know, we wanted to make sure everyone had been vaccinated properly before going into that. Um, You know, just to try to prevent any, you know, any rescuer uh, from falling ill or even worse, you know, from uh, up there trying to to, to locate this lady.
1: As the uh, search and rescue dwindles down, obviously the area needs tons of supplies. And I have really seen the communities, neighboring counties, the state and even other states uh, bring it in. Craig, I'll bring you in for this. But what type of community support have you seen? in your area, you were in Clark County, which is what well, about two counties, three counties away.
0: Man, it's been wild. You know, uh, Jim alluded to this earlier about the good people of eastern Kentucky wanting to take care of one another down there. I think that's been seen throughout the state. We saw it last year during the tornadoes. We saw it again during this flooding. It's a pretty miraculous place, this place we call Kentucky. But one of the things that comes out of this, and this is one of the one of the negative things about helping people is that there's always unscrupulous people. So you got to be cautious. Uh, I always recommend people get in contact with the state of Kentucky, particularly state police early on. And because I, I, I mean, me as a person, I'm not a search, search and rescue guy, but because I talk about you guys so much, people think that I am. I was getting calls on how to connect people. I, I end up contacting John and he directed me state police and it's people just want to do something. But the best way to get something done, and I guess the word is good word is efficiently. maybe you guys can correct me on that, is to find the right order of people to talk to because information is being gathered and the help is the same way. Um, there's a, always a lot of churches that want to do something. There's different organizations that want to do things, but it's always best to find that organized methodology to get that supplies to people for example a lot of people were donating things that were just getting thrown away and so that's vehicles and trailers full of stuff that's not going to be utilized because it just can't be utilized in that situation so camp hero that i'm associated with they put two or three trucks together over in lexington uh rocco's one of the finest people i know him and mike pointer uh I, I got a p- bunch of people and uh, directed towards them I was noticing that there were just two or three trucks on different streets here in Clark County where people said, donate stuff here. I ended up checking on them because I just didn't trust it. Unfortunately, I'm not a trusting individual when that comes to that kind of stuff. And fortunately, I found that, yeah, that stuff was going to Eastern Kentucky. I doubt very seriously that Winchester is any different than the other counties in Kentucky. I think that was happening everywhere. People were just grabbing stuff and getting it to places to get it down there. I think it's I think, unfortunately, tragedy allows us to see the human side that I wish we could see every day. You know, I wish it would bring out the best of us in everyday life, but it just doesn't. But these tragedies help remind us where we need to be. I don't know if that's the answer you're looking for, Tracy, but that's, that's the one I've got.
1: No, uh, no, that's a good answer. We had a um, tremendous amount of supplies going up, and I would encourage if uh, that area still needs supplies. And I would encourage you to get in contact directly with someone. The state will put out a list of what is specifically needed. Uh, my pastor of my church got in touch with a pastor up there at that church, and they were actually talking to people face-to-face on exactly what they needed. So he provided us a list. I know at one point in time you could drive through there and just see water. Uh, not that we didn't need water up there, but at one point in time I, I think they had enough water to last a little bit. So I'd still encourage you to help those. One thing I wanted to touch on, on John, and I think you can answer this, is we got in communication, I think, with the mayor of Jackson, and they said that most of the people who were without a house had been moved to different counties. Is that correct?
2: Well, that that certainly happened initially. Uh, You know, my wife is the uh, mayor here in Campton, and she was uh, involved quite a bit with the uh, the initial response and finding the displaced, uh, including uh, people at the nursing home in Jackson, because they thought the uh, Pambo Lake Dam was going to rupture, uh, which would have flooded the uh, nursing home. So those folks Plus, other residents, uh, you know, that lost their home or were temporarily housed in gymnasiums uh, here in the county that we live in. And then, you know, the ongoing efforts are, you know, they're trying to find people permanent uh, places or at least long term, maybe not permanent the right word, but long term housing. So, you know, FEMA has brought in, uh, you know, trailers. Uh, for people to reside in. Uh, some of the state parks in Kentucky have been used for temporary housing, um, you know, and then a lot of people just staying with family uh, and friends. You know, it's going to be a long-term rebuilding. It's not going to happen overnight. And I think that's important. And, you know, and talking, you know, with people about don't give up, you know, what you're doing now, because, you know, the weeks and maybe the month or two following any kind of disaster, you know, people have a lot of assistance, but then that assistance begins to dwindle over time. And these people, you know, they are tough, rugged people in Eastern Kentucky and sometimes of, of little means. And, you know, you lose everything you've ever worked for uh, in a single night, you know, that's hard to recover from. And, you know, these people are going to need help for a very long time fema's great but you know if you talk you lost everything you own and thirty-five does doesn't go very far that may not even rebuild the road back to your home so it's going to be a challenge um so I, hopefully people can stay engaged with the recovery effort it seems like the uh the government here in kentucky wants to do that and uh you know we had a disaster in western kentucky with a tornado uh, we had a hundred year flooding event last year in the same area we're talking about uh you know so hopefully they build back and they build back better than they were before.
1: One thing that we will do for the podcast is in the show notes, be sure and read through there. We will have some links uh, if we can verify proper links that people can uh, make donations and take supplies to and such. We'll have all that. Uh, Before we close out, I want to mention a couple of things. And it, it is the, the giving spirit uh, of the volunteers. We had a tremendous amount of volunteers for Uh, Wolf County, Lee County, and Powell County, Search and Rescue, among many other fire departments. Uh, But we had the first Sunday or second Sunday, I guess, there, we had a gentleman drive in from New Jersey on his own, set up in the Walmart parking lot there in Jackson and was cooking food for all the responders. And I talked to him and I said, you know, asked him where he's from. he told me, I said, what would bring you to drive all this way? And he said, well, I lost my house in a fire. And he said it was unbelievable the amount of support that came his way. And he said, every time that I have the ability to to give back to something like this, he said, I drive and, and do it. A very good giving spirit. So uh, we had one individual on uh, that Sunday up there from Chicago that came down and helped search. So people gave and, and uh, drove a long ways. Closing thoughts. Jim, you want to start and give us some closing thoughts and we'll go ahead and end this podcast.
3: You know, I, I, I think... I think that the main thing is that everybody can do something and uh, we all have different skills and, um, and our heart leads us in different directions. But if you're so inclined, uh, you can find a way to contribute. If it's just opening up your, your purse and contributing to the state's fund, awesome. If it's uh, getting on Facebook and finding, uh, the, the link for Kentucky, uh, emergency management in Breathitt County. Who post every day they post, uh, what they need and uh, what resources they need and connect people who are, uh, mucking out houses and things like that. And it's, it's so appreciated. Just like the gentleman that you mentioned from, um, uh, uh, who came down from New Jersey. One of the ones that touched me was, um, you know, just here last year, we had these uh, awful tornadoes in Western Kentucky and Mayfield fire department immediately sent a half dozen guys because they wanted to pay forward all of the support that they had received uh, at the tornadoes. They wanted to come in and help do what they could. So uh, good people all the way around. John? Yeah, first, um, Tracy,
2: thank you and Craig for bringing attention to what, uh, you know, went on up here in the end of July. And, uh, you know, as Craig mentioned earlier, there's a lot of negativity in the world, and that's kind of what the news lives on. I mean, it thrives on the bad stuff. You know, this was obviously a terrible event that occurred. But in some regards, it restored my confidence or whatever word you want to choose and just humans, you know, being good people, you know, coming out, uh, helping one another, Eastern Kentucky people, you know, we may, you know, Wolf and the County, they battle on the hardwood floors during basketball games and bitter rivalries. But man, there was no hesitation when Bretton County called. I mean, Wolf County came running and I know the County would do the same for us and And that's what good people do. That's really, you know, it inspired me to see all these people doing all this work. You know, I put a lot of weight in people's uh, moral compass. I use that term a lot, you know, just what kind of human being are you? And and I've really seen some good ones through this disaster. You know, like Craig said, hopefully we could see more of that all the time and, and not some of this negative stuff that goes on because there really are a lot of good people out there doing a lot of hard work. And and just great job to all the different agencies that came together to help save as many lives as they could, and undoubtedly hundreds, if not thousands, of lives were probably saved. You know, from the efforts of all these different agencies across Eastern Kentucky doing what they did. You know, on on those couple of days. So hopefully, um, you know, they get through this, and they will. You know, we've seen it; they'll bounce back, and it'll just take a long time. But I I, I know they'll come back better than before.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Give a big thanks to. John and Jim for jumping on here and and passing on the information and events and everything before we pass it over to Craig for closing comments. Thanks again, gentlemen, for what you do and all the effort that you all put in to the search and rescue community. Craig, we'll throw it over to you if you want to give us some final thoughts and go ahead and close the podcast out for us.
0: Yeah, I uh, I think focus needs to be put on the good people that have done all the things that they're continuing to do, have done and continuing to do. What's the quote? You're, you're the summation of the five people you spend most of your time around or something of that nature. I think it would be good for all of us to spend more time around good people in Eastern Kentucky. Uh, we'd all be better people for it, we, and we're better for being around you guys. I am for being around you guys a lot. So I appreciate you guys, and uh, we'll make sure Tracy mentioned it, but I've been taking notes. I haven't talked that much. I've been taking some pretty good notes of places that if you're interested after you're hearing what's happened here – places you can donate, places you can find more information. They'll all be in the show notes. So for those that are interested, dig into that and be ready for the next one because there's another one coming somewhere and we'll be able to help each other out. You can look and see how you can help these guys that have been on this podcast, how you can help others. And uh, we like bringing information out to people so you know what's going on around you. There's some really good people that surround all of us in this country and particularly in the state of Kentucky. So appreciate you guys. Am I ending and out, Trace?
1: Yes. Uh, one quick note. Uh, John mentioned the Kentucky national guard, the uh, airlifted up there. I think we're going to try to contact, um, Sergeant Lowe and get him on a podcast. We may hear firsthand comments on that airlift from that house.
0: Good stuff. Real good stuff. Thanks guys for being here. And as always from Nature Live School, come on, join in. Let's learn together.